Today on The Black Goat, we talk about many labs for terror management theory and the idea of researcher expertise, and a letter about whether to quit academia or try to fix the system from within. Hi, everybody. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullet, but I'm not really... I always say I'm here with in a metaphorical sense, but you guys are there with each other in a very literal sense. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Um, so I, uh, I just got to Davis about four or five days ago um, because I'm spending my sabbatical here. Um, so I'll be here for most of my semester, which doesn't quite correspond to Davis's quarters, but, um, but for the next three or so months. Um, how so, was, how was the trip out there? I'm glad you asked, Sanjay. Um, so, uh, I sort of wanted to have a car while I was here and I also wanted to bring a bunch of stuff. Um, so I drove from Alabama to Davis, which is the longest road trip I've been on probably by like three or four times. Like I've, um, maybe the farthest I've ever driven is like, you know, nine hours or something like that. So I guess if you had, if you did it quickly, like if you tried to get from Tuscaloosa to Davis as quickly as possible, I think it's a 33 hour drive. Um, but I did, I did it over eight days basically. So I spent like a lot of time stopping, um, stopping at various places. At one point I picked up my friend Lauren in Houston and she came with me to, um, Marfa and to El Paso. So I had a, um, I had a companion for a chunk of it, which was nice because it's kind of like a boring chunk through West Texas. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had an awesome time. I really like driving. So I think I get, um, two reactions from people when I tell them about the road trip, I'd say like 70% of people are like, Oh, that sounds terrible. And then 30% of people are like, wow, cool. That sounds super fun. Um, and I think that probably so you like the division that. is liking driving. Yeah, you like the the driving part as well as the like seeing places part. Like both of those is one of those more than the other, or they're just both appealing to you. Um, driving through places that are interesting looking is pretty high on my list of things to do, especially if I'm like listening to something that I want to be listening to. Like if I have like listening to a good album or a good podcast or something. I've started to listen to podcasts now because I think like if you're driving for 10 hours, then you, you, I, I got sick of music, which used to not really happen to me. Um, it doesn't usually happen to me if I'm just on like one hour drives here and there. Um, yeah. I feel like, uh, um, yeah, when, when I used to do road trips from Eugene to San Francisco, and uh, started off doing music, and, and when we figured out, this was like pre-sort of podcast, I mean, podcasts existed, but they weren't like a big thing then, mm -hmm. but like doing audiobooks completely changed the subjective passage of time, like it went way faster than music did. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, yeah. So, so what were, what were some, some of that, like in terms of places, like what were some of the highlights, what were some of your favorite places? So let's see. Um, I, I thought actually, despite the fact that I said that this was a boring part of the drive, seeing uh, West Texas, I thought was pretty cool. So I stopped in Marfa one night and Lauren was with me when I did that. And 
I I really liked that. I thought that was like a really cool town. I felt like I was like in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's kind of an arty town and it was a little bit wasted on me because I was there when a lot of this stuff isn't open. Um, but they, they have some, some art stuff that's like, uh, outdoors that you can visit anytime. So like, I think the most famous thing is the, the Prada store in Marfa, um, which is like a, a Prada store in the middle of like the desert, basically. It's kind of cool. Um, and then, uh, I also, um, on my way up the uh, California coast, I stopped in Big Sur and went for a hike, which is like hard to beat in terms of uh, in terms of scenery. So maybe yeah. maybe those two things were like um, I, I played laser tag with um, my friend Lauren and her niece and nephew. So we when we stopped in El Paso, we visited her niece and nephew, um, and I was on um, her nephew's team, and we won. Um, but you can see the individual scores and it was like completely carried by him mm-hmm. and he beat these like 18 year old <laughs> obnoxious like dickheads and I was really proud of him. Oh, that's um, awesome. That was a good moment also. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I haven't, I, I'm trying to think like, it's been a while since I've done, I've done like road trips in the sense of like going one place and getting there and then getting back. But it's been a while since I've done like a many stops sort of wander kind of road like multi-day living out of your car kind of road trip um we're gonna do one this summer actually we're going uh um after sips my family's gonna come up and meet me in victoria and we're gonna go to uh like across canada and go to glacier national park uh, which i've never been to yeah yeah so i'm I'm excited. Uh, um, this is a, f- yeah, because we've, we've driven, I think some of it is just having a family, right? You can't, like, when your kids are little, you can't, you know, or, well, we couldn't take our kid that long because he would have gotten, like, completely stir-crazy. But um, now, you know, you just hand him the iPad and he can sit there for eight hours. But, uh, yeah. Would you rather do a long road trip with people or by yourself? I think, um, I think with people... I mean, honestly, like while I'm driving, I'm perfectly content to like have a podcast on. Like I don't need to be like having conversation stuff, but it's more like when I get to places, just like I'm not much for like solo tourism. Like I get a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like if I'm, if I'm someplace by myself, um, you know, I have to, there are certain things I like doing when I'm traveling by myself. I like going for walks in, in like big cities and Mm-hmm. exploring and seeing things but I don't necessarily like get really excited to like go to a bar by myself or go to a something else by myself um yeah so so in that sense I'd rather have other people with me I really like the driving by myself I mean so Lauren was with me for part of the time um and I would have rather had her there for the whole time but I think I'm very picky about um road trip companions like there's only like a couple of people that I would want to be with me on a really long road trip well, cool. That sounds like you had a lot of fun. Um, should we should we do our letter? Um, yeah, let's do the letter. All right. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I'm a faculty member at an R1 university, and soon I will prepare my portfolio for tenure review. However, I am also becoming increasingly disaffected and frustrated with academia. Recently, the, these frustrations have gotten to the point that I am seriously debating quitting my job. I work in health analytics, so I could reasonably quit the tenure track and still work in my field. I have seen many of my colleagues bemoan the incentives of the academic system, but either they do not fully appreciate that we are the ones creating those incentives, 
or they do not want to be the person to take the risk of going against the incentives. I've been on search committees where the same faculty who lament the fact that their postdocs cannot get jobs then overlook talented postdocs for more senior candidates. I've had colleagues tell me that the manuscript is meant to be an advancement of human knowledge, but then they also believe a faculty member should be able to regularly advance human knowledge 10 plus times per year. I've been told that middle authorship doesn't really matter. At the same time, I'm told that my collaboration that my collaboration would be so valuable, helpful, or necessary. The list also goes on. I guess my questions are, one, have you rebounded from these kinds of doubts at any point in your careers? And two, do you have any advice for weaponizing tenure, if I get it, to be a force for good in academia? Um, Best anonymous. I thought, I mean, I especially like this letter um, from my own perspective right now because I feel like being on sabbatical is sort of like a time when um at least i'm feeling like this sort of broader perspective and thinking about um what i do uh in terms of research and whether it's worthwhile and what i want to be focusing on and things like that um so i share many of our letter writers um concerns and also um have thoughts about especially his question or her question about weaponizing tenure um so you know how to take advantage of that stability and use it for um, projects that you might not have focused on before you had that security. Um, what do you guys think? I feel like I can relate to the part about like, yeah, wanting to weaponize tenure and wanting to like, uh, after tenure, do things on my own terms. But my answer to the first question about whether I've rebounded from these kinds of doubts is no. Someone asked me that recently. I was at a mentoring session and someone asked like, I was a mentor and they asked, did you ever think about quitting academia? And if so, like, how did you get over it? Or what did you do? Blah, blah. And I was like, I have a really boring answer. I just haven't. But most people I know have. So I don't have much to say about that. I don't think it's useful. So I understand the doubts. And I'm not, yeah, I don't, I don't think the fact that I haven't had them means anything. I think you should entertain the possibility of leaving given all of these very real problems, especially if you can easily get a job you would like outside of academia. Um, but I think there is a way, I, a lot of people say like tenure doesn't really make a difference, but I don't understand that. Like it can, if you want it to, I, I really do think it in many places, it gives you a lot of freedom, especially if you're happy with other aspects of your job, like the location and pay and things like that. So you don't need to worry too much about being movable or hireable or whatever. Then I think you can become that person who, calls this stuff out at faculty meetings or makes different decisions even if they won't be rewarded by the administration or things like that so I think there are a lot of opportunities to do things differently after tenure Mm -hmm. I think um for me the the appeal of a non-academic job um it depends on what my um disaffectedness is focused on um, so if it's like, as the letter writer notes, if it's sort of a frustration with the system, I do think that especially post tenure, um, you can lead like a very meaningful, um, you can have a very meaningful professional career within the system trying to change things. Um, and I think if, if you care about the system and you want the system to be better, um, then doing that from a position of having tenure is, I think um, realistic. I mean, it's hard to change an entire system, but you can 
you can have, I think, like an observable effect, especially within your department. Um, but then the times when I, when I think more seriously about quitting academia, it's not so much that, um, that I think the system is broken and I don't want to be working within the system anymore. It's that I wonder whether the, um, I can accomplish the goals I want to accomplish within academia. So whether there might be some, and this is a very abstract idea, but might be some other more worthwhile goal that I could, um, devote myself to. Um, that would be non-academic. And to the point about sort of like, uh, have I rebounded from those kinds of doubts? Um, the times that I do feel like the most committed to academia are times when I think about all of the ways that you can use an academic job in um, really productive ways. Like you really have so much freedom in terms of what you spend your time on. Um, so especially post-tenure, um, I think that yeah, if you, at that point, you have sort of like the freedom to move away from things that are traditionally valued and focus on whatever you think is important. And you have, I think, quite a nice, you're in quite a nice position as a professor um, to pursue those kinds of things. So I think it's a pretty nice, yeah, a nice position to try to pursue projects that you think are meaningful. Yeah, I, you know, I gotta say, I, I think I maybe resonated the most with that, or at least, well, definitely more than Samin did, but like the, the idea of like having those doubts. I think some of it for me is kind of temperamental. I think no matter what I, w I was doing, I would be, I think it's just kind of like how, how I approach the world that I kind of, you know, my mind just tends to go to like, what's the, you know, what are the big, what's the bigger picture? What are the systems that I'm part of and, and sort of questioning it, which is funny for me to say, because I, I feel like, Samin, you you think about those things, too. You just they, you don't connect them to yourself in a way that I do for some reason. So, like, you've got a better immune system for asking meta questions or whatever. Um, for me, those things are very connected. Like, I, I you know, um, I can't not question the system that I'm a part of, but then I also can't, like, connect that, not connect that to, like, well, should I be a part of it or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I definitely get that, and I've I've had those, definitely had those doubts. They they've you know they rise and fall in the, both the short day to day term and the you know a larger swings over longer periods of time where I'll go through. And it's always part of my mind, but sometimes it's more intensely and more kind of um, negatively uh, affecting me. And and I think the the things that have gotten me through those kinds of doubts are what I've come to realize is that um, for me, at least it's, it's not enough to have like the primary work, the primary scientific work that I feel excited about that we're doing in, in my lab. And it's not enough to have like changing the system, restructuring the incentives as like work I'm doing through service or through whatever else that, that I need to kind of have both. Like if, if all I felt like I was doing was, trying to change the scientific system, but I wasn't actually doing science that I felt good about myself, I would feel like I was missing out on something. And I'm not saying that that's going to be true for everyone, but that's just like, in, in my case, I've, I realized that like, trying to like, yeah, I would, I would sort of, because, you know, then I start to say like, well, I'm changing the system, but for what? Like, if I can't get excited about like, doing the things I'm trying to make the system better for, why, what's the point of making it better, you know, or, or something like that. So 
So I think like finding a way to to connect to work that you're doing and it may not it doesn't have to be the most like exciting cutting like sort of trendy hots whatever kind of stuff but just feeling good about the work you're doing but then also yeah I think if if you question the system then feeling like you're doing work to change the system is really important to to battle that kind of sense of of doubt and nihilism as far as the tenure goes I I kind of feel like um Structurally, tenure puts you in this great position to do stuff, but like as an actual sort of like human being going through it, it both like selects for and shapes people to not rock the boat. And so I'm not too surprised that like more people don't rock the boat after they get tenure just because like in order to get there, you have to get through this really long training and career period where you're doing one kind of thing. And then you know, just like you, you know, you, you, your life gets invested in doing things a certain way. All the people you know are doing things a certain way. All the, the career signposts are pointing in a certain direction. All the, like, the remaining, it's, you know, it's like tenure is great, but there's still, like, if, unless your ambition goes to zero, there's still, like, merit reviews and getting to full professor and, you know, all the other, like, personal achievement kinds of things that that people tend to care about. Um, And the fact that like, if your life is moving along, you may have a partner, you may have a family and and the idea of like, I'm going to give up on getting getting anything other than the like cost of living raise every year. So I can be like, you know, difficult in a pro-social way Mm -hmm. or whatever. And and say like, screw the system now that I have like all this privilege within it. Like it just kind of doesn't happen that way. And so, uh, or it doesn't frequently happen that way. So I guess what I would say to the letter writer who's about to go through that is that if they stay in academia, um, it's, it's not just going to be as easy as like, oh, well now I got tenure so I can do whatever I want to. Like it it really is going to take a concerted effort. And so I think finding support for that what you know individuals that see the world the way you do um organizations that that you know collaborations whatever so that you feel like you're not that person sort of being gaslit by the system but you have other people that that like you can talk to and see it the way you do and that it it is going to you know you're gonna have to ask like am i willing to you know give up on certain or at least to, to add higher risk to certain conventional signs of continued success and progress. Maybe you'll still get them, but but you have to be willing to, to risk not getting them. Um, so I, I don't think it's, yeah, you know, like tenure exists to protect us from power, um, from power structures, you know, external to, to academia, but also maybe internal to it. But like, it's just the whole system sort of channels you in the direction of going along yeah i mean i think having a community that shares your values is really important if you're like literally the only person fighting for the things you're fighting for yeah it's going to be lonely and there won't be any rewards or recognition and that might be too much to give up but i think if if it is part of a community it doesn't have to be at your local um institution but then i think it's not as big of a risk and i don't think you're giving up all like you know, a lot of people have noticed that like meta science papers actually are getting cited quite a lot. So like even by that traditional metric of citation or whatever, it's not that risky to to start doing meta science work or other things like that, I think aren't always as risky as they're portrayed as being. It's just more like before tenure, if your colleagues don't really 
like it or agree with it, that could be enough to sink you. But after tenure, I feel like merit reviews and other things like that, like it doesn't, your colleagues don't have to personally like it. It just has to like, they can't really deny if it's doing something good for the community and, and especially if it's getting high scores on the metrics they care about and things like that. So I feel like the kinds of ways you're evaluated after tenure is a lot less personal. Like I feel like for tenure, there's always the risk and it's not tiny that if you've pissed off your colleagues or they just don't like you, that's going to be held against you. But that isn't going to come up nearly as much after tenure, I think. Um, yeah, there's a little I mean, bit I more like objectivity that, that's in definitely... evaluations after tenure, I think. Yeah, that, that's definitely true for like, I mean, what you said about meta science, I think is a really good point that a lot of times people who are, you know, taking those risks that what or what it feels like is a risk in terms of like what they're working on can can easily end up as having been on the cutting edge of something. Um, I mean, when I'm looking at the list of examples in the letter, things like, um, uh, you know, they say like, uh, you know, Colleagues tell me a manuscript's supposed to be an advancement of human knowledge, but then you're supposed to do it 10 times a year. And, and so the implication, I think, is that the letter writer thinks that, like, you know, that's that's a conflict and that you can't actually advance human knowledge. And so, like, what's the action implication? Well, it, you might decide you want to slow down your science and publish fewer, better papers. And, and that is something that depending where you are, could have like tangible costs to your career. Mm -hmm. if, if your colleagues really care about quantity, um, that, yeah, uh, I mean, um, that could hurt you. I agree. Like, I think there are costs, but then, but I think they're often exaggerated in people's minds. And I think other things people do or could do post tenure, like invest more in teaching or invest more in service, like editing or other mm -hmm. things like that, which pre tenure, especially you're told like, that's a waste of your time. It's going to hurt you, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But I think, it's, maybe it's true pre-tenure, but I don't think it's as true as people think, especially post-tenure. Like, I think if someone mm -hmm. just really got into teaching or really got into editing or or took their research in a direction that, like, nobody a priori thought was a particularly good idea or safe bet or whatever, I think most of the time they end up not in a very different position financially and in other ways than they would have if they did the safer, more traditional thing. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways I'd almost flip it around and I mean the letter writer is about to go up for tenure so so this isn't necessarily directly narrowly at them but like I think I'd say for most people like don't wait for tenure and it's it's not because I'm downplaying the risks it's because it's not worth it not to like if you're gonna get out get out like <laughs> don't you know don't don't wait till you're almost at tenure and then you're like oh well I have to decide if I'm going to change the system or get out, it's like, just get out. Um, because the longer you spend in academia, the harder it's going to be to get out, certainly psychologically and maybe job market wise too, who knows, um, depends different for different people. Um, you know, and it's, it's like the, if you really feel like you're part of a system that's not aligned with your values, it's just going to have this corrosive effect on you for, you know, like being part of that for years. If, so if you're like a first year assistant professor or a grad student or whatever, and you're asking yourself these questions, then they're not, the questions aren't going to go away. Um, and, and yeah, like it's more of a risk to you, but it's only a risk in relation to, I have to have an academic career. And if, if you're like, well, I, you know, so again, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't the risks. I'm just saying like, the longer you're in, you're you're going to get more psychologically and financially invested in the life that you've created yourself. You're going to buy a house. You're going to start a family. You're going to, you know, have friends who do the things that you do and, and think you're going to do the things you do and all that. So, 
Yeah. So I, I would, you know, I think in that sense, like my, my, my advice to, to act is not because the risks aren't there. It's because it's not worth avoiding them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also think, I, don't know. I guess, I, I yeah, wish... I can, I can hear Twitter. Mm-hmm. I can hear Twitter saying easy for you to say Sanjay already, which is why I haven't been on Twitter in a month, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also think like there are plenty of people and I think I was one of them who like didn't really think about this stuff before tenure. So if you find yourself after tenure thinking, how can I use this to be a little bit more rebellious and things like that? I say, go for it. Like I, yeah, oh, yeah. my only, whatever it occurs to you, go for it. Yeah. With like, with what you said, Sanjay, like, you know, don't wait is that I think it is possible that you could experience sort of a perspective shift with tenure um, and if this person is sort of like close to that, um, it might be interesting to sort of put yourself in that position and see, okay, well, now that I don't have the pressures that I had before, um, what do I want to focus on? And, and you might sort of experience that differently when you actually have tenure. Um, like, I think for me, I mean... I'm not sure how dramatic the actual, like, actually getting tenure was in terms of realigning my priorities, but it was a really, like, it was a really nice feeling to be able to think, oh, I can, there really is no, there's almost, there's very little risk to thinking about my job in a, like, dramatically different way. So that was kind of, like, exciting, and maybe, I don't know if I could have totally foreshadowed it um, beforehand, but maybe I could have. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if, if, if somebody doesn't feel that way, I wouldn't say like, assume, I, the, I think don't wait was targeted towards pe- anybody who's thinking this already. Like I'd say, don't, don't say I'll get to it someday. Um, yeah, I agree cause, with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're just, you're gonna, you know, and other things you care about, like another thing, which I think, especially in people in the more like neuroscience or biomedical side is like, as you build up your lab, there are people that rely on you for their incomes, right? And so are you going to say, fuck the system if, like, you've got postdocs and, you know, right. yeah. re- lab managers and stuff who are depending on you to do the conventional thing and keep getting grants? Like, you could, but uh, it'll be harder for you to do that. And so, you know, um, yeah, I'd say, like, when you start having these questions, start doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it might... It, it might if, if you shift later in your career, then make a change later in your career. Cool. Well, do, uh, do you guys have anything else to say for Anonymous? No. No. All right. All right. So, uh, well, I hope we've helped you, Anonymous. I don't, I don't think we talked about, like, leaving academia very much other than, like, eh, if you want to go. But, like, you can, you can, you can do stuff if you, if you want to. Just do it. <laughs> that's kind of my take on that okay um well yeah uh thank you anonymous for emailing us and and listeners if you would like to email us with a, a letter you'd like us to answer and discuss or if you just want to give us feedback you can reach us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com we're on twitter at blackcoatpod we're on facebook facebook.com slash blackcoatpod instagram instagram.com slash blackcoatpod uh, you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, and other places you get podcasts. If you rate us, uh, that helps other people find us. Um, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, so our main topic today, uh, there we want to talk about uh, 
there was a Many Labs paper recently. It's Many Labs 4. I don't know if this is actually the fourth one to come out. I feel like the Many Labs is were numbered is. in the order they started, not the order that they came out. But anyway, this is so it's it's called Many Labs 4. It's like it's like Star Wars but even more complicated than that. It's mm-hmm. just like the the numbering and the chronological order have, you know, a loose relationship at best. Um but anyway, so so uh, yeah, we thought it would be interesting for a couple of reasons. So one is just the theory itself that uh, um, that it was based on terror management theory. I think is a it's an interesting theory to to discuss for reasons we'll get to. It's occupy. I think it occupies a pretty interesting niche in social psychology. Um, it's kind of unusual in some ways. And then the the purpose of the many labs study was to study expertise. And so specifically what they did was they uh, um, uh, they took a study from, uh, study one from Greenberg et al, 1994, one of the early terror management empirical studies, um, and had 21 labs run replications of this study. And half of them uh, just had, half of the labs just had access to the article and whatever they could find in the literature and were told design a replication and run it. And then the other half um, consulted closely with the authors of the original study to refine their procedures. And so the other half uh, ran a, a version that was done in consultation with the original authors. And the, the, um, the study was about, so, so terror management theory um, uh, is, it's this theory that says that basically humans have this fear of death that's like a qualitatively different fear than other kinds of fears that because death is the end of your existence so it comes from like existential philosophy and so the idea is that um, in order to we have to have these special defense mechanisms to deal with the fear of death and uh, um, and so the uh, the theory is based a lot around this idea of mortality salience that if you make someone's mortality salient to them you'll activate these mechanisms one of them is the idea that um, cultural worldviews, like our sort of cultural beliefs and assumptions, are a buffer against death, like feeling part of a larger culture. And so, when you become, when your death becomes salient, you're more likely to like endorse and buy into beliefs of your dominant culture. So that's the general theory. And so, in this experiment, people uh, were manipulated to either be in a mortality salience condition or a control condition. And then they were shown a pro-U.S. These were all Americans. They were shown a pro-U.S.A. or anti-U.S.A. or and an anti-U.S.A. essay and asked to, to make ratings about the authors, um, their evaluations of them. And in the original study, mortality salience made people like the pro-U.S.A. author more and the anti-U.S.A. author less. Um, and, and so that was the original study. But in the many labs, not so what they were looking for was a whether there'd be a difference between the author advised and the what they call the in-house condition where the replicating labs just tried to figure it out on their own. Um, and they didn't find a difference, but the, the reason they didn't, or I shouldn't say the reason, but they, they didn't find a difference, um, but that was, the larger pattern was that nobody found the effect at all. So the, the average effect in the study was nil. Um, neither kinds of, of labs found an effect. So... Um, uh, so this came out. We'll post a, a link to the preprint. There's a nice blog post that we'll also post a link to that sort of summarizes what they did and what they found. And so in some ways, what the what the authors concluded is that they couldn't really study the expertise effect 
um, because they couldn't get the terror management, the basic effect, um, in any of the labs or in any of the groups of labs to begin with. Um, does that, did I hit on the, the highlights there? Was there something I missed? I think there's a lot of details that we could get into, but I think those are, yeah, yeah. I think that's like the overview. Yeah. Okay, One, good, I mean, good. I thought it was interesting that they said that they can't say anything about expertise because the effect turned out not to be replicable under any conditions that they tried but I, I think there's one thing we can say about expertise, which is that at least this one time, it's like an existence proof, that sometimes when experts say that something is going to really matter, that they can be wrong. Yeah, I, I, that was something when, right, when the, the this grand conclusion, expertise, we can't say whether expertise matters, that was based on a, a, a specific operationalization of detecting whether expertise matters, which is the assumption that the author advised group would find the effect and then whether expertise matters is whether the other ones get a smaller or whatever effect. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so I think the, um, I think that's a really good point, which is like when, <laughs> when people say, oh, you needed to have expertise to get the effect. So, yeah, sometimes that's not true. You know, or I also like, think it's that, really uh, important that the experimenters yeah. know that blah, 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 blah. I know that that's really important. We can now say, well, so there have been times when people who were the most expert possible in this th- in the theory said they were sure that something would matter, and it turned out that it didn't. And maybe they would have been right under different circumstances, but at least they were wrong in this instantiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I, I think that the I'm not sure that I I'm not sure that the authors would have the original authors would go so far as to have said we're sure it would work. But yeah, I think the idea is like they they advised on it. I mean, to me, there's also, you know, there's an implicit assumption in this and a lot of times when we talk about expertise, which is that expertise means you're more likely to get the effect or you'll get a larger effect. And I find that to be a really, and that I think that comes from the discourse around replications, right? Because expertise is a... It's an alternative explanation for a failure to replicate, right? That the the sort of it's an alternative to the to the the conclusion that the original was a false positive. People will say, no, 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 the original was right, and and it's the replicators lacked expertise. Um, and so flowing from that is this idea that what expertise means is you're more likely to get an effect. And I find that to be really like. That's a that's an interesting definition of expertise because you know when I think about what I teach in research methods and when I think about like what we do in my lab when we're really being careful about designing a study, you know, yeah, we're thinking about like do we have good measurement? Do we have a valid manipulation? But we're also thinking about, uh, or if it's actually we hardly ever do manipulations, but you know whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, good procedures. Um, but we're also thinking about like are there confounds? We're thinking about are there demand characteristics? Are there experimenter effects? And you know, expertise means understanding when you have to do blinding and knowing how to do it well. Expertise means or should mean you know developing materials that don't tell subjects what they're supposed to do. And so, you know, like lack of expertise just as easily could mean non-experts are more likely to produce an effect, um, especially if you bring confirmation bias into the picture. But even even if not, like not all errors are randomly distributed. Some errors are systematic and, and a lack of expertise can mean introducing a systematic error. And and just this dialogue about expertise completely, well, I think, overlooks that. I think we're conflating two different kinds of expertise, which is what, which is common, which is uh, like 
being an expert on the theory versus being an expert on research design mm-hmm. and execution. And I think those might even be negatively correlated that the more attached you are to the theory, the less you're going to try to be careful about artifacts that would inflate your effect because of confirmation bias and things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there could be different kinds of expertise that push in different directions. Yeah. I always have the, um, my initial reaction to expertise when it's raised as like an explanation for a failed replication is maybe predictably like I, I usually want to reject that explanation. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that I feel like, um, it's just really easy to think that, um, the sort of, the kinds of errors that can lead to false positives and things like that are somehow, um, you can predict them because you've been the one conducting the experiments. So I think it's like sort of analogous to feeling like, I don't know, the clothes that you wear influence the outcomes of your sports team or something like that. Like it feels like this, um, this version of over detecting patterns or whatever. And so people feel like it's there. They now have like, they know the secret ingredient to what is going to lead to their experiment working. Um, but I was trying to like push back against my own uh, reactance against the expertise explanation and think about times when I think that expertise is important. Um, and I definitely do think there are situations. So like a really sort of boring, obvious example is, you know, you can't just take an undergraduate student and tell them to run an EEG study, for instance. Um, and so there are, I think, certainly times when expertise with a particular methodology or with a theory um, would be necessary. Um, but I, I think that we tend to overestimate um, how much that uh, is, is necessary to be able to, to, to run a reasonable experiment. Yeah, I, I also think the, like the expertise explanation when people bring it up in that way you're talking about Alexa really needs to be qualified as hidden expertise because you know mm-hmm. I, I like an example for me mm-hmm. the the first honors student I ever worked with um, really wanted to do an experiment on the mere exposure effect and specifically wanted to do the subliminal mere exposure effect so she wanted to replicate this old science experiment replicate and extend this old science experiment where um, you know people were flashed images with masking so that they were they were below conscious perceptual threshold and and then later on they they're shown the, the images and other images and they like the ones that they saw earlier right so so she really wanted to do this she was my first honor student i was like okay let's and and she wanted to do it with me because you know i was doing emotion research at the time and it was sort of affect related and and i was like sure let's you know let's give it a try like uh, um and, you know, she, like, I think she, you know, so so here's an undergrad, kind of similar to what you're saying. It's not EEG, but, like, presenting stuff below perceptual thresholds yeah. is, like, a pretty technically demanding right. thing. Um, but the thing is, like, I, like, I, 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 went, I said, yeah, let's do this because I thought it would be a good experience for her because I thought it would be interesting to try. But... I knew going into it that like, I don't, you know, I don't have experience with this. She doesn't. So I don't have the experience to advise her well to do this. Like, 
I, I knew going into it that I wasn't really going to like trust my own results very or our own results very much. Um, and I think, you know, so, so when we say like expertise, you know, I think there are, you know, like I wouldn't try to run an EEG experiment in my lab without bringing in actual experts. Like I would know better. So, so like, and I think we, we talk about that all the time. We say like, oh, you can't run an fMRI without knowing how to do fMRI. It's like, yeah, but nobody tries, <laughs> you know, like nobody, nobody's like walking over to the imaging center and saying like, you know, give me the keys. I'm going to go do it or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And so, yeah, so, so, so it really they like have enough expertise to run. Yeah, there one people themselves will know Two, like some things there's this natural like I literally wouldn't know how to get started with an fMRI or an EEG yeah, study right. without like, you know, some training or whatever. And so you literally couldn't do it. Um, and then, you know, and then there's the like, you know, peer review stage where, you know, there may be visible signs. So it really when people say like, oh, it didn't replicate because of expertise, what they really mean is hidden expertise, expertise that um, escaped everybody's notice. Yeah, and I think sometimes what they really mean is you have to be one of the proponents of the theory. And like what Baumeister says by flair comes very close to being like, you have to be a true believer or you have to like, if you can get the effect, then you have expertise, right? Like a circular definition of it. And actually when this result came out, I heard somebody who I won't name because I don't have their permission, but they are very senior in the field and relatively well-known. After they heard this result, their comment was, can you believe that? You know what this means? This means that it's not enough to just get advice from the original authors. Mm -hmm. You have to physically go to their lab and learn from them. And so then my thinking was, okay, let's say there was a many labs where they did that somehow with like millions of dollars of funding and very patient original authors. And that didn't work. Then they would be like, oh, my God, you know what this means? You have to train with them them for five years. And then eventually, yeah, you have to, like, I don't know, yeah, live with them or become them or whatever. Um, Yeah. So that's absolutely a thing I think people say. I I do want to say in in defense of the terror management authors – that in the in the paper where it describes the modifications that they suggested, um, they a, a, a couple of the things that they recommended were actually in line with what a meta analysis had shown produced larger effects. So I think they were really engaging this in an authentic yeah, way. Yeah, I don't mean um, them. I mean so the I, fact that they were willing yeah, yeah, to do yeah. this already means that they're not yeah, no. these people who think that flair will never be. If they thought it was completely unfalsifiable that just like if you were good you would get the effect, then then they wouldn't have signed up for this study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I know you do you know. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure, yeah. like, people listening right. know that, like, this this was, like, they, they were, so, like, there's this, one of the findings from the meta-analysis is that you get a larger effect if there's more of a time separation between the manipulation and measuring the DV, and so that was one of their suggestions. Another was that... Um, cultural the cultural worldview effect you get a larger effect if it's a judgment of a person than of an idea and so in the original study they measured both your attitude towards the essay and your attitude towards the author and the the replicating author or the the terror management expert said you know make the dv about the authors not of the essay not the 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 ideas of the essay because so they were i think they were engaging like they were they were seriously basing it on you know 
and I'm sure other stuff like maybe came from more tacit knowledge, but in at least a couple of cases, it was like stuff that was documented in the literature. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think, yeah, I think people who like read this paper should know this was, this wasn't just the like hand wavy, whatever, like these, these ridiculous things that people do say that like yeah. you need to go visit the lab or whatever, that this was like the serious version of expertise that they were yeah. trying to bring into it. Yeah. I mean, I still would like to know what it would take to falsify the claim that there's a certain je ne sais quoi that like predicts who can get the effect. And that's like, that's terror management theory is sort of unique in that regard. Right. Like, uh, I should, I shouldn't say this because I, I can't like, um, I can't back this up with any evidence, but I've, I've heard that when they were running the original terror management studies, maybe one of you knows the answer to this, that there was like really this idea that, um, that like the experimenters have to be like certain kinds of people and there were like you know like psychedelic posters in the lab intentionally because it was supposed to create this like mood and you see it i guess a little bit in the Mm -hmm. in the write-up right that they the original authors instructed the um informed labs to have like an experimenter that was like what's the description relaxed or something relaxed yeah yeah so there really was this idea not yeah. not just a postdoc idea but an idea that like you're trying to create this like weird mental space in these participants that like allows for this existential threat to like really manifest itself yeah in this case i think they really believed that they knew some moderators a priori yeah which yeah 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 i, I really so admire too. that they were willing to yeah. put that to the test yeah yeah me too yeah but Sandra, so, you brought up the meta-analysis i think that brings up a really interesting yeah. issue so in the paper on around page 26 the the authors talk about the network of evidence and how this one study can't like turn over a whole network of evidence. And we see this a lot too. Like I feel like all authors of replications, even if they're many lab or multi-site replications, if they're of one instantiation of the effect, of course they should and, and do say that there's just one you know, brick in the wall and there's many, many other bricks. Mm-hmm. But then I always say, like, want to say, well, is there any reason to think this brick is weaker yeah, than the other right, bricks? Right, right. And if not, like, why why shouldn't it call into question the whole wall? And in this case, there's not, there's some reasons to think this brick is weaker. Some of the design aspects of the study, which we'll get to, are quite bad. And I suspect there are other studies with better, like, sample sizes and things like that. But there's other reasons to think this brick is more solid. Like the original authors nominated it as a really central finding that it was selected because it was assumed to be generally replicable. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an interaction effect. Like there are lots of reasons to think the other bricks might be even more susceptible to being inflated and so on. Right. I mean, I think right. that, that yeah. I think that line of argument sort of rests on what you make of the original body of work. Right. So if, and I would count myself in this group, right? If you count the original body of work, and I, I, I'm, I don't mean this specifically about terror management theory, but just about like existing research and social psychology, I'm already pretty skeptical. So when one individual study is chosen as, you know, something that should be fairly representative of a subfield, um, and it turns out this way, that's like enough to really shake my faith in the overall wall. But if you have... A, a lot of faith in the existing wall and then somebody knocks out a brick, I think that the implications are different. Um, of course, you can debate whether you should have a lot of faith in the original wall, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think the the logic of it is very much in line with a sort of, like, 
textbook deductive approach to science, mm-hmm. which is like we have a theory and we're not, you know, we're deriving from the theory like if this theory is true, then if you run this experiment, there's an extremely high probability that you'll get a positive result, uh-huh, right? Yeah. And and you didn't get the positive result, so modus tollens, you know, you've got a, a falsifying, you know, event against the theory or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and so in that sense, it doesn't have to be like you don't have to test a million operationalizations or whatever if if you accept the premise that like if the theory is true then this experiment definitely should work that's an even different so i think that's the rationale that's a different argument than one i was making though that's another reason i think to not yeah 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 yeah. but i think i think that's yeah i think that's why the the um like oh there but there's all these other studies like that's why to me that's not a strong argument is is that at least going into it you know yeah people based on the theory and based on like the interpretations of the people that had the most expertise in the theory that if any experiment is going to work it's going to be this one Mm -hmm. and and i felt very similar about the ego depletion when people said well like there's a million stimuli you could do there's a million whatever but but it's like yeah you know i mean like an analogy is like Okay, gravity affects everything. And mm-hmm. someone says, well, I did a, I did the like feather and a bowling ball in a vacuum and they fell at the same time. Yeah. And someone's like, well, feather and bowling ball, that's just like two arbitrary objects. You could have picked anything else. That doesn't generalize. And they're like, no, the, the theory says that, you know, any two objects, you know, you drop them in a vacuum. It, it's not arbitrary in that sense. And yeah. so, yeah, it, it just feels a little bit like... If you accept that premise, and I think that's the motivation behind why, I mean, they say in the blog post that they chose this because they thought it had a very high probability of being replicable, not just in the context of terror management, but also just in a more general sense, because they had this goal to study expertise and they wanted to pick something that that like should produce an effect. Um, and so the fact that that was part of the reason for doing it makes it that much more damning that they couldn't get the effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also feel like sometimes this this sort of defense that like, okay, knocking out one effect or, you know, providing pretty persuasive evidence that one effect um, isn't very robust, doesn't, shouldn't undermine an overall theory. I think that that argument often like involves some fudging of, I guess, the um, relationship between the original, like the, the kinds of studies that have been run and what the theory says. And I had the same sort of like gut reaction with the ego depletion results actually, where I was like, I can't think of an individual ego depletion study that I would be like really sure would work. But I always thought that the idea, and, and since, um, since all of these results have come out and actually like a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who, um, gave me a theoretical reason to, to, to question my original belief in ego depletion. Um, but I always thought that it was such an intuitive idea. Like you do something that requires a lot of effort and then you have to do something else that requires effort and you do a shittier job of it. Um, but I guess like, I, I do think that, that there's this sort of process of like slightly adjusting what part of the theory you focus on or, um, how broadly you construe the theory when people start defending theories after these failed replications. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a way in which like you could say, yeah, this doesn't challenge the original theory, 
um, that becomes completely unfalsifiable. You know, if you have sort of like unlimited flexibility in how you construe the original theory and which original paper you look at as the exemplar of the original theory, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. the other, I mean, related, but another thing that I don't get about these excuses people make for why every other brick in the wall might be fine, it might be just this one, like, it implies that there aren't causes of these exaggerated yeah, and right, false right, positives right, yeah. that would be there for almost all the other published studies that found an effect as well. So, like, I know we don't want to, like, attribute motives or intentions or whatever, but still, there were research practices independent of motives and intentions. It didn't have to be any bad motives or intentions, but there were research practices that were causally implicated in the inflation or creating out of thin air of effects that mm-hmm. then fail to replicate. And those factors are yeah. at play throughout the literature. So why not let the negative conclusions spread? At least, you know, obviously it should weaken as you move away from the targeted effect, but it shouldn't not spread at all. That right. doesn't make any sense to me. And I think this particular study, this is like very dangerous tre- territory to tread into. But if you look at the details of the study, I wonder how many other studies, whether in terror management narrowly or in social psychology more broadly or psychology or science more broadly, have these characteristics that looking back in hindsight, we should have been extremely skeptical. So the sample size was 59 spread across five conditions. So in the two cells that were contrasted in the application, the sample sizes must have been like 11 or 12. Yeah, yeah, eleven and one, twelve in the other. Okay. Yeah, and then, <laughs> so they're they're replicating a, uh, essentially a study that had twenty three subjects. Yeah, and yeah. they found a like, d effectively. of one point three four p less than point oh oh one. So I don't know. Once you control for the multiple comparisons, you know that this is a pairwise comparison of two conditions out of the many pairwise comparisons you mm-hmm. could have made with five. Um, I don't know if that's consistent with file drawing or harking or a little bit of p-hacking or if you need something more than that to get that extreme of a result assuming the true effect is pretty much zero but that's i mean we should just have looked at that and been like a d of 1.34 for this and the the manipulation is even called subtle i don't really know what's subtle about it but it's called the subtle mortality salience um condition yeah i i mean i don't want to I don't want to beat up on the many labs authors all that much, but I when I when I dug into the details of the original study, uh, this, these issues that you're bringing up, I was really surprised because in the blog post, I'm going to read a quote from the blog post uh, by the many labs authors. To look at the effects of original author involvement on replication, we first had to identify a target finding to replicate. Our goal was a finding that was likely to be generally replicable but had substantial variation replicability due to procedural details. So so they're saying their goal was to find something that was generally replicable, but then the effect that they chose was a absurdly high but, effect so size I, with 23 subjects. Yeah, I mean, okay, I don't know. But I think, so my general impression, and I think this was one of the reasons why this specific study was chosen, was that if you looked at the terror management literature, this paradigm, like this... The, this manipulation and this kind of DV comes up all the time. They said this manipulation is used in 79% of terror management studies. Yeah. And then, I mean, the other thing I would have said, I, I have, like, we have the benefit of hindsight. I don't think I would have thought this effect was zero, right? If, 
if in 1994, before we knew about P-hacking and all that, they got a D of 1.34, my best guess would be that the real D is like half that size, or even even that seems like gigantic, so maybe I would have like downshifted even more. But I wouldn't have, I don't know that I would have thought it was zero. So I would have thought it was mm-hmm. maybe a very good candidate for something that could be zero if you don't do it exactly right, but could be detectable in a many labs design if you did do it right. Yeah, well, there, there's there's the, the meta-analysis, the 2010 meta-analysis, which we'll link, that found an average effect size of an R of 0.35, which is like a medium mm-hmm. verging towards large effect. Um, you know, yeah, like I think, I think if you had asked me in 2010, before I was thinking about all these issues of p-hacking and all that other stuff, if you'd asked me like, you know, what would a many lab, or sorry, what would a, a replication of, of the basic terror management paradigm produce? I think, I think I would have had two competing thoughts, which is, I think there's an empirical thought I would have had, which is if I was aware of the meta-analysis, I would have said, well, look, there's a lot of studies showing that, you know, this at least operationalization to operationalization, you're getting a non-zero effect. So there's probably an effect. I think the other but the other way I would have come at it would be to think about the theory. And, and there, I think, and maybe we can shift gears a little bit and talk yeah, about, I'm curious about the theory this. as a theory. Because I, I feel like, so my, my sense is the, the, the sort of the, the discourse around this, the kind of general view of terror management theory was, was very different from, or not very different, and in, in, I think in some notable ways, different from ego depletion. So like I see a lot of parallels to ego depletion. Like mm-hmm. there was a big meta-analysis that says there is an effect. Yeah. Somebody picked the the paradigm that if, if anything's going to work, this is going to work, and it didn't Just, show it, right? I don't think that's, that's true parallel. about ego depletion. The Serpata et al. paradigm was not, I don't think that was like a commonly used paradigm. So I think that It wasn't commonly exist. used, but it was... It was um, it was one that experts thought would work, and then there was the 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 other one with the two different paradigms. Yeah, the second the, one, the I think. Yeah, and, yeah, that yeah, one is much more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I think the the difference the difference is that um, the like ego depletion was like broadly like a lot of people were like yeah kind of what you said Alexa like yeah that sounds intuitively like that's probably mm-hmm. right some version of it. Terror management I feel like was very polarized. Yeah. Like, some people really thought it was cool. They thought like, wow, this, you know, this makes a lot of sense. This is deep. It taps into this existential philosophy. You know, of course, death is going to be different from other kinds of fears, yada, yada, yada. And then I think other people looked at it and they're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, you know, fear of death, existential anxiety. You know, like, I think I, I, I remember, I can remember like having conversations with people in the 90s and do and and. 2000s uh you know like i think it was just there was there was much more of a mix so i think some people would have said like on the basis of the theory like yeah totally makes sense i should see an effect and other people would have been like something wacky is going on yeah it's interesting because i think so there was definitely a point i know because i think that i i've written papers where it's clear that i believed in terror management theory so there was definitely a point when i believed in it um since then i think i've become I became pretty skeptical of it, um, probably post 2010 or 11. Um, and then, but then I would talk to people who were not psychologists about it. So sometimes I would like go to terror management theory as like a theory that I thought sounded implausible. And I would talk to people who were not psychologists about it. And I feel like the response was, as you say, very polarized. Some people were like, absolutely like, 
you know, the idea of death is terrifying. Um, and yeah, we, I mean, I don't know if they would go so far as to say, like, we have these, um, we have these cultural worldviews that serve as coping mechanisms or whatever. Um, but this idea that we have to cope with the existential threat of death is very intuitive to some people. And then to other people, it sounds like totally absurd. Um, and I remember saying that to me, it sounded totally absurd because, um, because I don't find the thought of death terrifying in any way that sort of is reflected in these papers. And then a friend of mine who, who was a psychologist said, yeah, because you have all of these coping mechanisms. So like your, your terror has been effectively suppressed. And I was like, oh, um, it's your, it's your high self-esteem, Alexa. Yeah, That's, exactly. Uh, right? The, the, two, the two mechanisms are cultural worldviews and high self-esteem. I love America and I have high self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> I love America. I love myself. Yeah, well, that... So what's interesting, I think, I think this is an interesting illustration of how the, di- the skept- how skeptical dialogue, the possibilities of being skeptical about something have shifted in the last decade because I think in, in 2010... If you just didn't believe the theory and someone goes, hey, look, come on, there's this meta-analysis, 277 experiments. Yeah. Then if you want if you want to argue that the theory is not right, you basically you have you're in the, the domain of alternative explanations. Right. Essentially, no one's questioning the empirical result. Mm-hmm. And so you have to say, like, oh, there's some there's some confound that all the experiments have in common or there's some other mechanism or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because the idea of dismissing a meta-analysis of 277 experiments pre-2011 would have felt kind of ludicrous to most people, mm-hmm. like the empirical result, dismissing the empirical result. And I don't know, like I look at this meta-analysis now and, and they did a, a fail-safe N, which I think now I would tend to believe is meaningless. Mm-hmm. They have a funnel plot, which doesn't look like that crazy line, but it's, you know, you're kind of eyeballing a funnel plot. The main thing I take away from the funnel plot is that the sample sizes are small, right? The, the you know, the y-axis is the sample size and vast majority are two-digit sample size and a lot in the low two-digit, two digits. And I'm like, well, you just can't tell anything from anything from that, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, so like I I don't, you know, it's just, it's like, it's now possible, like, you can't, you can't kill somebody with enough studies, like you can't, or you can't force somebody to accept a belief by saying, well, uh, you know, there's 277 studies or whatever. um, Studies that are, yeah, studies that already exist, and like, we're not pre-registered, but I think you can kill, right, um, kill a belief, perhaps with like a pre-registered high, like, like a many, that's a very big change to go from yeah. Meta-analysis is yep. the pinnacle right. to yes. a, a registered report that's well done and whatever, no, not much deviation is the pinnacle. I think there's a paper, I can't remember who it's by, but that like um, meta-analysis is no substitute for a well-conducted large-scale replication or like hmm. pre-registered replication, something like that. Um, and yeah, I think if one takeaway from this to me, because this isn't the first time, right? Yeah, there's ego depletion, there's other cases where the meta-analysis just I mean, in the case of ego depletion, there was a meta-analysis that did anticipate the effect being close to zero. The McCullough et al., I think. Um, but, yeah, I, I'd like to see meta-analyses perform a little bit better at anticipating these 
failures to replicate. Otherwise, I'm going to give up on them. Like, maybe these new techniques that probably the 2010 analysis almost surely didn't use and um, the first ego depletion meta-analysis didn't. But if if now meta-analyses start to have a better track record of matching up with these very high-quality replication studies, then I'll start trusting them a little bit more. But right now, meta-analysis is nowhere near the pinnacle of evidence for me. So maybe we should probably wrap up soon, but I, maybe a good question to discuss for kind of before we go, like in the year 2020, what's your, where do you stand on the theory of terror management? Like what's your, what's your, your like, how, how would you characterize your belief? <laughs> like after all this, it's wrong. Um, I think, so. okay, so I took a, I took a quote from the, um, from the Greenberg 1994 paper so that I would, um, know how they talked about terror management and I'll read a shortened version of it. Um, terror management theory begins with the assumption that humans share with other animals an instinctive drive for continued existence. I can agree with that. Sure. This drive when combined with the uniquely human awareness of vulnerabilities and mortality creates the potential for paralyzing terror. That's where they've lost me. Um, This terror is managed by means of a cultural anxiety buffer consisting of your cultural worldview and your self-esteem, which is like the belief that you're living up to um, that cultural worldview. Um, So I think I already... um, I think this this, um, Many Labs project was enough to create a lot of doubt for me in the terror management literature and now like and with that in mind looking at the sort of like premises of the theory um i'm just not sure that people people have a paralyzing terror that they need to manage um you're not 40 yet <laughs> okay i've never used to like believe in anything i, I did know. not predict that you would say that yeah i mean i think my prior on terror management theory was extremely low before but now i'm like a month away from 40 and i'm like i don't want to cease to exist i don't want my life to be like halfway over so i wonder if in like 70 year olds you might get more of these effects I, if I could imagine designing a study that is in line with the de- this description of terror management where you would find an effect. So, like, if you, like, tell Samin, think a lot about the fact that you're going to die one day, and then ask Samin, like, how much does she want to win a lifetime accomplishment award from something that... I, I'm trying. I'm having a hard time thinking of, like, an academic institution that Samin values. But, <laughs> but you know, something that she cares about. Sh- maybe... Yeah, maybe if something were made much, much more explicitly about your legacy, um, then I could I could imagine the connection. But but that is that is not terror management theory. Mm-hmm. Terror management theory is that this is like something that's happening at a subconscious level, and we have these defense mechanisms that yeah. um, are under the surface. Yeah, I mean, I have the same problem with ego depletion. Like the idea of ego depletion in its broadest form seems very plausible to me, but the operationalizations and the phenomena that are being tested don't seem plausible to me. And that's part of like why the theories gained traction because right. they're explicitly saying we're not just saying this like thing. very obvious yeah. intuitive thing. We're saying a different version of that. Yeah, I mean, I would say to yeah. me, my prior on the theory was probably higher than yours. But my posterior after seeing the many labs four is zero. Like 
I just, yeah, there is no effect. And I don't limit it just to this operationalization as unpolitically correct or whatever the politics of replication as that is. I think this spreads. I think this taints the vast majority of the terror management theory literature. What about you, Sanjay? Yeah, I, I, I see it uh, very similar to ego depletion as, I, to me, it's, it's in, to get all highfalutin, it's like Lakatosh, it's, it's shifted into degenerative mode, right? Like, mm. you now have to come up with all these ad hoc excuses to hold on to the theory, or, you know, like some people have done with ego depletion, you have to strip it down so much that, to like such an obvious point that you've lost all the things that made it a theory, you know, like if, if you strip this down to like, people are afraid of death. Well, yeah, but that, like you said, Alexa, that's no longer terror management theory. Right. You know, you need to have the, the, um, the defense mechanisms. You, you know, if you're not talking about cultural worldviews and all this other stuff, you're not talking about def- the terror management. And the same thing with ego depletion. If you're just saying like, exerting effort makes you want to exert yeah. less effort. Yeah, sure. But that's not ego depletion. Um, right. You've lost the common resource. You've lost the, the, you know, the distinction between, you know, willpower and yeah, effort right. and whatever else. And so, so to me, like, look, the, the, that logic of like, if any experiment, if this theory is true, then this experiment's definitely going to show it. Like that to me is a pretty strong argument. It's possible that that was wrong, right? It's possible that they picked the wrong one. And that someone's going to go back to the drawing board and they're going to say, oh, no, 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 like the, the supporting assumptions about how we operationalize were wrong. And we can, you know, so like degenerative research programs can come back to life. But for, for, for me, it's in like the gears are in reverse and the foot's on the gas right now. And, uh, um, you know, and I, I think the people that are committed to this theory, like, I don't think they have to give up. But I think like, I, I wouldn't want to be, you know, it's, it's got to suck to be in their shoes. But I think the the kind of the onus is on them to, to shift it back into forward if they if they want to keep it moving. I wish their labs had been included in this many labs, I would have liked to see if they could replicate the effect with no research. Like if they could get them. it themselves. Yeah. yeah, with a pre registration and all you know, yeah. registered report and all that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, you know, that's often the response to you know, original authors who complain about replications is like, well, you know, the ultimate response would be like, you know, submit a registered report and then do it yourself. Which and, to and, Kathleen Voss's you know, credit, yes. she did. Which she did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yep. She did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I think that wraps us up. Yeah. Um, are we good? Yep. All right. Well, thanks, guys. And thanks, listeners, for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.